Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Last Wednesday, we sort of did an introduction to the book, and I would like to get through the first church of Ephesus, but we'll just see how the time goes for us tonight. As you look at the first three verses, it's unique in that it's the only book in the Bible that that promises a blessing. With the blessing, it also promises a curse. So it begins with a blessing in verse 3, blessed is he who reads. So just by sitting down and going through the book, you're going to get blessed, primarily through the promises that are given to the seven churches. Each one of them receives a promise. And then it concludes, though, in chapter 22 with a warning. And the warning is the danger of adding to or taking away any of the words we're about to read. So it is unique, and it's primarily a prophetic book. Um, The name literally means to unveil. Sometimes the idea of going to an art gallery or they're having a showing and and, uh, they have the thing all wrapped up and everybody's waiting for them to rip off the the cloth so they can see the, um, the artistic work, whatever it might be underneath it. That's the idea of the book that we have here. The key, I'll mention over and over, the key to the book of understanding, this is 19. It's the book divided into three different sections. John is told to write the things that he's seen. That's going to be our study tonight, section one. Then write the things that are present tense, chapters two and three. And then write the things that are after these things or after the things of the church. Now, one of the main points we made last week is why mainline Protestants and Roman Catholicism do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. Now, if you weren't here, I read a little bit from um, Hal Lindsey's book, and which pointed out some of the early church fathers like Origen and Augustine. Augustine would have been around um, an origin, oh, around 300 or so. But imagine having the scriptures in, in the year 300 A.D. And um, you read the book of Revelation, it's primarily about Israel. When you get to chapter 7, you have um, 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses being signed sealed. <laughs> now, I always say that because that's, they really hang their hat on that. And it, the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to say, no, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And we talked about the tribe of Dan not being mentioned and why. The tribe of Dan was the one that led Israel into idolatry. And um, so that was part of the introduction. If you weren't here, you can, you can get it. Uh, but as we dive in tonight, these first three verses is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It comes from the Father. It's given to the Son. It's imparted to John throughout the book as the angel shows him these things. So let's read the first um, three verses here, and we'll find the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servant things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Now, this was written in 96 A.D. It is the um, last um, writing of the books. It's the last book of the Bible. Uh, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Now, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written for the time is near. Um, Daniel and Revelation are primarily known for being books of prophecy. And that's what we have in mind here. The unveiling of... Now, as far as the Lord's concerned, 
I did a series on this in 2010 and called it Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. As far as the Lord is concerned, this is all past tense. Everything that we're about to, and some of these things look forward to, they've already happened. It's a done deal. Nothing can change it. Everything we're about to read has already taken place as far as the Father's concerned. I like to give the analogy of being in a parade and, and um, you know, you're on top of the Zilkia building downtown and looking down in it. And you can see the beginning of the parade, and you can see the end of the parade, but if you're just sitting on a sidewalk, you just watch the events go by. Well, we're sitting on a sidewalk. We're watching the events go by. And um, you know, there's so many rabbit trails that we could get sidetracked on tonight. Make sure you read um, the news bites for today. What happened in Turkey today is major. Uh, they pretty much went from being a d- democracy to um, giving unlimited power, it's going to uh, strengthen um, uh, what's taking place with Turkey being a key player. Now, for years, Turkey was trying to get into um, um, the European Union, and uh, they finally lost that, and now with the selection that just took place, it's the first one, so when you get home, don't read it during the Bible study or I'll point my finger at you and point you out. But it's major. I mean, it is a major birth pain. And one of the great things about going through a book of Revelation right now is, um, well, let's cheat just a little bit and go to chapter 14 and verse 15. There is no red letters until you, until you get past chapter 3. There are all red letters. And you don't have red letters again until you get to verse 15 of, of chapter 16 where the Lord is talking right before the great battle of Armageddon, he just stops and he says, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Now this is in red letters, so it's written to the, to the church. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and not see their shame. One of the key reasons we want to study the book is to know what to watch and what to watch for. And as we tie it into Daniel on Sunday mornings, we'll be able to hopefully dovetail these these together. So the book is special, and um, it is unique. Um, in verse 4, we find that John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. I'm going to put something up on the screen right now that is going to show you where the seven churches were located. Interestingly enough, one of my favorite trips to Israel was being able to go and visit. uh, We went to one, two, three, four different places, five different places. And only three were worth watching. Two were worth worth going to, and that was Ephesus, Patmos, and Pergamos. So what's interesting about this is these seven churches are not the biggest. They're not the most important. They're seven selected cities, and they're all within 80 miles of each other. And if Turkey is in the headlines today, that's where these seven churches are located, all in what we would call modern-day Turkey. From here to Milwaukee, what is that, 80 miles, roughly, depending upon where you start from? So imagine drawing a circle, 80, 80 miles, and you will have these seven churches in that, in that area. Um, Patmos is on this map because um, this is where John receives the revelation. Uh, in verse 4, it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is, and was, and who is to come. Um, you know, let's face it, the book of Revelation is a book of information about prophecy. But lest we, again, make the mistake of the book of Ephesus and get caught up with um, information, let's start with grace and peace. Grace and peace, first grace, peace is second. You cannot know the peace of God until you've known the grace of God. Good place for an Amen. You can't know the peace of God until you've experienced his grace. And in a nutshell, grace 
is what we talked about on, on Good Friday when Jesus said it's finished, it's paid for, all done. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. You can't be a part of the equation. All you can do is receive it as a free gift. That will set you free. The moment you put your work of any kind in there, um, you will fall short. You will mess it up somehow. Another good place for amen. <laughs> We're good at messing things up. So the Lord knows that about us. And so this grace, you know, this is, this is John writing, but it is clearly Paul's thinking that you'll never know the peace that passes human understanding until you've come to that place where it's all about the grace of God. Grace and peace, grace always first, and then the peace. And um, who was and who is and who is to come, past, present, and future. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, when we get into, I think, chapter 4, we'll actually go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. And the first couple of verses talk about seven attributes of the Holy Spirit of God. We won't do that tonight. And But again, seven, we made a, um, a lot of that last week, the importance of the number seven in the book of Revelation. The seven letters to the seven churches. Here we have the seven spirits. Um, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us, and he washed us from our sins, in his own blood. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, the idea of servanthood now uh, plays into our role. Um, well, Lord put it this way. He says, if you're faithful in just the little things now, then I'm going to cause you to be faithful over much later. So the ideal position to want to achieve to is that of servanthood. And the guys had just the opposite. <laughs> they were just the opposite in their mentality. Uh, they were self-promoters. James and John wanted to sit on the right and left side of the Lord, and they put their mom up to ask the Lord to do it. And so what he had to do is get down and get a get a wash basin and go around and wash all their feet. And then he says, do you know what I just did? And they said, yes. <laughs> and they didn't have a clue. And they got to Peter, and Peter said, you ain't going to wash my feet. No way, Jose, not going to happen. He says, okay, Peter, then you can't have anything to do with me. In that case, Lord, give me a whole bath. Give me a shower. That's what he said. He says, no, Peter, I'm setting an example. And if I am your Lord and I'm washing your feet, then what we should esteem to achieve too is that of esteeming the other person above ourselves. Now that is not my nature, and it is not your nature. Another good place for an amen. We love number one. The Bible says to love your neighbor as what? It's a self-given that you already love yourself. I love myself. You love yourself. You can prove it. Just look at any group picture that you're in. And who do you look for first? Yeah. Were my eyes closed? Were they red? Were I blinking? You know, we're self-absorbed. It's just human nature. And so that's why Paul says, I die daily. I have to die daily. Guys, if you don't have devotions in the morning, and if that's not the first thing that after you grab your coffee, I grab my coffee for the first thing, and, um, you know, then we have devotions. Sometimes Judy and I will um, listen to music. Sometimes we just worship, um, singing to the Lord. But um, always just starting your day that way and make it a pattern and make it a routine. And usually people say, well, I don't have the time. Well, then get up earlier. You know, some people are morning people. And some people are night people. Another good place for an amen. I'm a morning person. I'm not a night person. So I just, I'm just uh, fresher in the morning. It's just a, a better way to start, start our day. But um, 
I highly recommend, you know, Chuck's devotional, Wisdom for Today. And then what, um, I think Rudy, wasn't it you was bringing up the Proverbs on Saturday morning? One of the guys was. One of the guys said, you know, there's 31 days in a month, there's 31 Proverbs, read a proverb a day. And um, good advice, or have have your own chart that you can pick up in the, in the bookstore of how to work your way through the Bible in a year's time. But with the servanthood now, Jesus came on that lowly donkey as a servant. But he's returning on a white steed stallion with... Um, a robe on him that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But the first time he came as a servant, and this is our first time here, too much of the church today is promoting the here and now. How to have your better life here and now. No, it's not about here and now. Here and now our job is to serve. And that's been modeled very well uh, by Chuck um, over the years. And I could tell all kinds of kinds of stories, but that we would never get to Ephesus if we did that. So in verses 4 through 6, we find the Father who was and is, the unchanging one in the eternal now, the I am that I am. Uh, the seven spirits before the throne, we'll get to that in chapter 4 and 5, and then we'll go to Isaiah 11, the full completeness of his office. And, of course, Jesus, the faithful witness of the martyr, same word there, one who testifies to truth even to the point of death. He was the first fruits, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Now, John is receiving this revelation, then writing the seven churches in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind the idea that we have two comings of Jesus. And when you look at verse 7, we'll read it. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, here in verse 7, what we have is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not a picture of the rapture of the church. And the question is, why do they mourn? Let's just go back to the book of Zechariah. It's right before uh, Malachi in the Old Testament, so real close to the end of the Old Testament. And in the book of Malachi, chapter 12, this is what's happening currently Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples, and they will lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Now this is unfolding as we make our way through Revelation this time. The focal point right now is Syria. Um... The old president of Iran is running again, and he says, if he will, he promises to destroy the United States of America. That was news yesterday. Uh, but the focal point will be Jerusalem. And um, the idea of a cup of trembling, it'll, it'll be a problem that nobody seems to have a solution for um, because of... of um, the settlements that are being built, and um, Palestinians say that it was their land. There's when there was no such thing as a Palestinian, never has been, never will be. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion. In its rider with madness, I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the people with blindness. The governors of Judah shall see their heart. The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a, a fire pan in a wood pile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand, on the left, but Jerusalem 
shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David shall be like God and the angel of the Lord before him. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations which come up against Jerusalem. Psalm 2 says the same thing. And what we have in view here is uh, the bold judgments where we actually have the nations coming against them. But here it says um, that every eye will see him and the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Now notice that during this period of time, we have two witnesses preaching the gospel. We have 144,000 others preaching the gospel. Some will believe, just like on the day of Pentecost. Some will not. Now it says, I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on him. Now this is Revelation 1 verse 7 on whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him. So in Revelation 1, 7, talking about the second coming, they're going to look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieves for him as one grieves for his firstborn. I mean, all their life, they've been waiting for the Messiah to come, And when he does come, they mourn. If you turn the page to the next page, ah, here it is, verse 6. If someone will say to him, this would be the Lord, "What, what are these wounds in your hands, and how did you get them? Then he will answer, well, those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. When it hits them, it's going to hit them with such an impact. We read in verse 7, when he comes in the clouds, every eye will see him. Now this is completely different from the rapture because in the rapture it says um, that we'll be changed and we go up to meet him. And nobody sees the Lord at the rapture. We're just taken. And uh, verse 7 is an important verse as we sort of do an overview, but uh, let's not be confused what we have here coming with the clouds, and those that see him, that pierced him, and the people on the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. And then he gives his first title in red, I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was, and who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So in the first uh, eight verses, seven, eight verses here, we have um, this um, double perspective, um, which brings us to the revelation where John now introduces himself, I, John, in verse nine, and what happened to him. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and in in the patience of Jesus Christ, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. All right, let's just stop and look at Ephesus. Ephesus is where John planted a church. And when we were in Ephesus, um, we took a boat to, did I say that right? I took a boat to... I, i got to make sure I get my Wisconsin accent down right. So you can take a boat out to this beautiful island in the Mediterranean or the Aegean Sea, as it says here on the map. And this is where John received his revelation. It's a beautiful ride out. And um, um, this was on my bucket list my whole life, to think could actually go to the island of Patmos and see where this book was given to John. 
So we know that if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it tells how all the martyrs and the disciples died. It tells us that they tried to kill John in Ephesus by boiling him. That's the legend. And John just wouldn't cook. (laughs) And as a result, they had him exiled to this island. And it was here on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God. So the reason for his imprisonment is because he was telling people about Jesus. And for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So I believe the Lord's day has... Um, a couple of meanings. It, I believe it simply means it was a Sunday, the Lord's Day, and that he was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice as if as of a trumpet and saying, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So again, let's put the map back up on the screen. So the seven churches that we just uh, read, um, these are the instructions that the Lord gave to him. Um, When he turns to hear this voice in verse... 12, I turned, so this was going on behind him, so he actually turns around to see who's, who's talking, and as he turns, um, the voice that spoke, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And here's the only um, glorified description that we have, except maybe a little bit on the Mount of Transfiguration, where it says uh, his gown was whiter than any any white. And that um, this, this is where Moses and Elijah would have appeared to him. And But he has a golden band around him. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice was a sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. So what we have is seven golden lampstands, and in his uh, right hand he has seven stars, And then it says, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now imagine, just try to put yourself in John's sandals just for a second. What do you do when you hear this voice and you see this, see the lampstands, you see in his right hand these seven stars floating around? What would you do? (laughs) Well, you do what John did. I fell at his feet as if I was dead. He was scared to death. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So we have a vision here and a description, at least on the island of Patmos, when John received this revelation, he was face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he declares, I am the one. I am the one who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I say amen to that. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, I quoted this verse on Sunday um, that he hasn't yet come back in Romans and in Hebrews. It says, even though we're redeemed, even though all things are under his feet, it says, uh, Paul, I think is writer of Hebrews, says, yet we don't see all things under his feet yet. What do we see? We see the world getting worse every single day. Now, how anybody can 
be post um, millennial or, or hold to dominionism and replacement theology and just be honest with themselves for a second that we're going to evangelize the world, it's going to become Christianized and only then can Jesus return. All I say is open up your eyes and look around. Every day there's a shooting or a killing or a stabbing. And now, you know, it always used to be in the, in the bigger cities. But now it's happening locally. And Jesus said these are just the beginning of sorrows. Jesus says just the opposite when talking about the question of the last days. And he said, well, there's going to be a lot of false prophets, a lot of false Christs. They're going to deceive a lot of people. So I look out at the church today, and what do I see? A lot of false Christs, a lot of false prophets, preaching a different gospel. That it's all about here and now, a better life for you. And the example that was set before us is all these guys died, except John. He died of, of uh, natural causes, but not the other 11. They, all were, they were all martyred. He says, and that brings us to um, the one verse that is the key to the book of Revelation. And that is, write the things which you have seen. Well, easy enough. What did, what did you just see? Well, this voice that spoke like a trumpet, a man whose voice was like many waters, his hair is white, he's got a gold band around his feet, around his waist, his feet are like uh, fine brass, and in his hand are seven stars, and out of his mouth swords, and he stands in the middle of these seven golden candlesticks. Write it down, John. Here's the first division of the book of Revelation. Write what you've seen, comma. That would be chapter one. And then the second division that I want to start tonight, hopefully get to Ephesus, and write the things which are, that would be present tense, and that would be the church age. Rome would have been in power at this time. And then write the things that will take place, and the, the Greek word here is benetonta, after this, or literally after these things, or literally after the things of the church. And just go to chapter 4, verse 1. It's the same Greek word there, metatata. After these things, notice that the letters are black and not red. They're red in chapters 2 and 3 because Jesus is speaking to the church. And um, we are in that time frame right now. But I think we're very, very close to the rapture. Um, and we talked about Acts chapter 2, the beginning, the birth of the church. It was birthed by the Holy Spirit. It could be seen, it could be heard. And it will end, according to Romans, with um, when the fullness of the Gentile comes in. That's implying something. It implies that as, as the number of the church goes, that there's a set number. When it's full, and when it's full, um, then God is going to start his clock again, and that's the 70th week of Daniel. He owes Israel seven years. And when we're out of here, click, click, click. The clock begins again. And the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to 18 is a seven-year period of time. That's why we call it Daniel's 70th week. All right, back, back to um, chapter 1 where it says, write the things that must take place after this. After what? After the church age. Um, then verse 20. Now here's a good example of, um, of symbolism and why a lot of people, I don't think I finished explaining why most of Christianity doesn't teach or study the book of Revelation. I mentioned origin, and I mentioned, um, um, who else did I mention? <laughs> Augustine, yeah. Well, imagine teaching, getting to the book of Revelation, and there's, there's no Israel. You know, they, they've been gone since 70 AD. When the Romans came in, Jesus' prophecy, there won't be one stone left upon another. That was in 32 AD. Well, 38 years later, in 70 A.D., 
that was fulfilled. And we call it the dysphoria, dispersed into all the world. They haven't been there. Imagine being a professor in a Bible college, and you've got to teach the book of Revelation, and it's about Israel. There is no Israel. So what must it mean? Well, man leaning on their own understanding said, well, it must apply to us. There was always a small handful of people that said, no, we don't know how, we don't know where, we don't know when, but God's going to bring the Jews back to the land. And there will be a literal fulfillment of the book of Revelation. But during church history, for almost 2,000 years, they simply haven't been there. You want want a modern-day miracle? Look at Israel. It's a modern-day miracle. No ethnic group has ever been... Their, their nation has ever been completely destroyed and been dispersed into to the world and then regathered again. They're usually assimilated within a very, very short period of time to a new culture. And um, But Israel is unique. They're different. They have their traditions. <laughs> they have their Sabbath. <laughs> they have their Papa. <laughs> and they've maintained that. Wherever they went, they, they kept their Judaism. After the rapture, the very next verse, it says, and so all Israel will be saved. So that brings us to um, the interpretation of the symbolism. What are the seven candlesticks? What is, what's that all about? And what are the seven stars? Well, This is a good example because sometimes in a chapter it will explain it. But the reason that we're going through Daniel at the same time is sometimes it's not explained in Revelation. It's explained in Daniel. And it's important that we teach the two books together. So verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, here's the interpretation, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and um, the angels um, could be referred to, in in the Greek, it could be uh, translated uh, messengers, angelos, uh, which means men or pastors. I personally believe it's addressed to the pastor of that particular church, and um, and the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. And the idea is this, that Jesus is walking in the midst of them all. So whenever two or three are gathered together, what does the Bible say? He says, I'm there, two or three. And so whether we're aware of it or not, the Lord is here tonight. Good place for an amen. And... What I pray for, Lord, is just that consciousness. John, when he started this, he says, I was in the spirit. He was conscious of um, the Lord's presence. And there's just times the Lord does special things. And all of a sudden, you're very, very aware that the Lord is right here. But we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. So... Um, I think we touched on this and made a point of it on Sunday with Thomas. Thomas, you believe because you've seen, right? He said, more blessed are those who've never seen but yet still believe. So don't think you're uh, inferior as a Christian if you never had a divine revelation or anything like that. On the contrary, more blessed are you because you believe only because of the word that's being preached. That's exactly what Jesus told Thomas. You believe because you see in Thomas. But there's a lot of people who, who, and I think I, you know, I think the percentages are about 90% of believers. Never really had a road to Damascus type conversion like Paul. But they heard somebody share with them. In my case, it was Billy Graham. Here he is, a Baptist who doesn't believe in the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he's got the gift of evangelism. He's 90-something. He's still around. I think that's, somebody should sit down and talk to him before he goes home to heaven. Say, Billy, you got the gift of the Holy Spirit of being an evangelist. I think he knows that. That brings us through 
chapter 1, which is the first division of the book of Revelation. And here we have the explanation of the seven candlesticks and who it's being addressed to. Now, this we are going to make it through Ephesus tonight. Um, but this had to break John's heart. Because this is 96 AD. And, you know, the gospel had just... Um, they were given a commission to go out, and here, here it is not 60 years later, and the Lord has to deal with issues that have crept into a church that started out pure, but now he's, he has to deal with it. Before we dive into Ephesus, just a little introduction, the similarities of, and differences between these seven churches. Actually, there's a fourfold application. The first one is the letters to the churches as they existed at John's time in 95 and 96 AD. In other words, there, was a, there were issues with the church. They were specific to that church. So that's one of the applications. The second one, that it is to the church for all times. When we read these letters, it is applicable for you and me also. The third one, not just the church at large, but as individuals for warning, number one, but also for encouragement. Um, I learned so much about um, the Lord dealing with correcting people and then not leaving them hanging after a correction. And I'll get, when we get into the book of the, the first one here, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. <clears throat> so a warning, but also words of encourage, encouragement. Now, I'm going to put something on the screen at this time, and um, it's the time frame for the historical applications. I believe that it is a picture of church history, and um, each church seems to, to define seven distinct periods of church history from the apostles to the second coming. And um, I, I hold to this, I see it, and um, as we go through it, the one that we'll be addressing tonight would be the apostolic age, and that would have been from the time that the Lord was taken into heaven, and up to about 100 AD, right about where John is right now, because John wrote this in 96 AD. Um, then there are similarities of the seven churches. Now, the Lord will choose a title for himself when he addresses each individual church. And the title used for himself has something to do with the spiritual condition of that church. Now, to the church of Ephesus, Ephesus he says, um, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That's the title. He says, here I am. I'm the guy that is, has the seven stars in his hand, and I'm the guy who is walking amongst these seven churches. So that's the title for Ephesus. But to the next one, he's going to choose a different title with Smyrna. He's going to identify with them as they were the persecuted church, and that would be from 100 to 312 A.D. The emperors were brutal. I've been in the catacombs, and um, you've all heard the stories about the Colosseums and throwing the Christians to the lions and burning them on the stakes, and the millions that died during 100 to 300 A.D. So the title that he uses for the church of Smyrna is one they could identify with. What is it? These things says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your tribulations. Been there, done that. I can identify with you. And so we have uh, similarities with uh, the titles, but each one will be a different one. Um, 
Next, Jesus has complete knowledge of the spiritual condition of the church, where he says, I know thy works. Well, is there anything that the Lord doesn't know? He knows all about them. It's interesting that their evaluation of themselves and the Lord's observation, let's just cheat a little bit and go to the last one, verse 7. Um, their, their observation of themselves was that they were, uh, verse 17, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy, I have need of nothing but you don't know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you see, see the point? Their perception of themselves, well, they were into the prosperity teaching, evidently. Everything's going fine. But the Lord's perspective of them was completely just the opposite. So uh, he has complete knowledge of the spiritual condition of the church, and every one of them will say, I know your works. Number three, in each church, there is either a commendation or a condemnation. He will either commend them or condemn them. Uh, Instructions are given as to what to do. He just doesn't rebuke them and not tell them how to undo it. Uh, Words of encouragement are given. He addresses the individual here where he says that all of them to him who has ears to hear. That will be the same in all the, all the churches. He has a promise to those that are overcomers. What does it mean to be an overcomer? It means hang in there, guys. Don't give up. Don't look back. Like Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Don't think that there's something out there that's worth going back to. There's not. And that's a really good place for an amen. Okay, so we've been there, done that. We know there's nothing there. So the idea, what does it mean to be an overcomer? Just hang in there. Um, We often pray in in the prayer room before we come out, Lord, we need perseverance. We need endurance. We we, We want the strength to finish this race without compromising this book. Like I said, not adding to it or taking away from it. And, um, I liken, (laughs) I liken the the last days to these, ever been to to, to a, to the fair, when the fair comes into town, they have these tractor pulls. Aren't you guys from Wisconsin or what? You know what a tractor pull is, right? <laughs> Bethany and Josh are going, oh, a tractor what? <laughs> okay, so a tractor pull is this. You get, you get this mega tractor, and it has this huge sled behind it. And then the idea is you let this thing just go as far as you can, as fast as you can, but as you're going along, the weight is being pulled up closer to the tractor so that by the time you're getting close, it, it can no longer go any farther because of the weight that it started easy, but then it, can, it just left spinning its tires. That's how I see the last days. I see as closer we get, the Lord says there's going to come a time when you won't be able to work. I've often wondered, what does that mean? I think that the difficulties and um, the political things that they're trying to take away from the church today, um, the temptation to compromise for the sake of people and money, I think it's all there. And... Um, like it says, there will come a time where men will not endure sound doctrine or a solid Bible study. They won't have the time or the patience for it. And so we're told to labor in the word. Well, what does that mean? That means let's get down and gritty and read verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and, um, and watch it all fit together like a glove. So we find here that um, this promise to overcome is just keeping the faith to the end. That's what Paul said when he finished his course. He says, I've kept the faith. He didn't brag about his accomplishments. He says, I just kept the faith. So if you're an overcomer, 
Um, you're not thinking about turning around and going back and trying something different or another way. So it's a pattern to use to correct us and instruct us. These are all similarities to all of these seven churches. Now the differences of the seven churches. There are two distinct divisions of the letters, these seven churches. One, two, and three, and then is one division, and then four through seven is another. Three churches are charged to repent or turn. Ephesus, Pergamos, and Thyatira. The last four churches all seem to be in existence when the Lord returns. In other words, um, there will be four types of churches in existence at the Lord's coming. And um, he'll say things, be faithful until I come. And uh, as I look out at uh, Christianity today, I see basically these four different types of churches. And we'll, we'll get into them as we go through them. The first three, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, um, are not given that charge. But when we get to Thyatira, uh, we have uh, the rise of Catholicism. Sardis, a formal church, dead, dead church. Um, I call it dead Protestantism. Especially in Europe, when we have Robert Cogden here, for the pastors' conference, I hope you guys show up for this. He is uh, he is uh, the man that is um, really qualified because he watched Europe fall to this new reformed theology that that is hit there. And the fact of the matter is, they're called state-run churches because the state pays to keep the doors open. And if the state didn't pay to keep the doors open, there wouldn't be one. So it's dead. It's not healthy enough to keep itself alive. Um, the other one, the Philadelphia Church, they were a fervent spirit uh, church. They were beloved. And then, of course, um, the Prosperity Doctrine and um, Name It and Claim It group and one that believes that there's a better life for you in this world, but they're dead worldly in a lukewarm church. And... Um, We'll we'll just leave that up as we make our way through the first one tonight with the book of uh, with the Church of Ephesus. So the title here is the I'm the one who I walk amongst you guys. And the thing that's a heartbreaker is this is the church that John planted, and um, he says, "I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil." You have tested those who say they are apostles that are not. You have found them liars. You have persevered. You have patience. You have labored for my name's sake, and you've not become weary. Wow, that is quite a list. They, they are up on, on false teachers, false doctrine. They hung in there when the going got tough. You've not become weary in doing well. They were active. And then he says, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And um, yeah, we can't be reminded of this enough. So let's just go to 1 Corinthians 13 as a, as a way to start the book of Revelation because it is prophetic and it deals primarily with future events, but we're in the here and now. We're still in, right, the things that are. We're in the church age. And the danger for the church is, uh, it actually starts with chapter 12 now concerning spiritual gifts. And, um, and desiring the gifts. But just picking up verse 13 Verse 1, though I have to speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, I become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries, well, that's the book of Revelation right there. And all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could 
remove mountains, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, we're talking martyrdom here, and if I have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, this is um, what, where it really gets uncomfortable. Instead of putting the word love suffers long in there, I want you, to, when you read it, put your name in there. So what I'm about to do is really embarrass myself in front of everybody, okay? And, but you put your name in there at the same time so I don't feel all alone, okay? Dwight suffers long and is kind. Dwight loves and does not envy. Dwight does not parade itself. Dwight is not puffed up. I put the word cocky in there. Dwight does not behave rudely. Dwight does not seek his own. Dwight is not provoked. Dwight thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Dwight bears all things. Dwight believes all things. Dwight hopes all things, endures all things. Dwight never fails. Try not to laugh at that one, please. (laughs) But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there are knowledge, it will vanish away. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. You put Jesus in there. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not pray to himself, is not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not provoked. Jesus seeks no evil. See how it fits like a glove? Yeah. And um, Paul, you know, started out, and only when he was at his end did he declare himself the chief of sinners. Because he had gotten really, really close to the Lord after walking with the Lord all his years. Same with John. John was a hothead. He was called Sons of Thunder. But now he's that disciple whom Jesus loves. And that's his, his calling card. And, um, all right, we can go back. That's convicting enough. But they had left. Notice what it, what it says here concerning um, Ephesus. First of all, it was, it was the best known of the seven churches. I want to show you what Ephesus looks like. Um, I'll show you the, um, the library, what's left of it. When you visit the, the seven churches, only Ephesus and Pergamos are worth seeing. And it would have been a port city. When we visited, we had to go at least a quarter mile inland because uh, the waters had receded. It was a port. Um, I'll show you the Colosseum. This is where Diana of the Ephesians when we were there, you could actually get an idol of her, um, and uh, she's a, a statue about this tall, and she's multi-breasted all the way down from the top of her head to her feet. And that was uh, this is where one of I think it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, if I remember right. It was a major city in Asia. Paul wrote an epistle to the Ephesians. It was called the Vanity Fair of Asia, similar today to what we would call uh, Vegas. The Temple of Diana of the Ephesians is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Would have been in in uh, in Ephesus. So we were there. We were in that Colosseum, um, and this is the first church that's being met, mentioned. All right. Um, Back to verse 4, nevertheless I have this against you, that you've left your first love. He acknowledges uh, this here. But notice it says they left their first love. They didn't lose it, but they left it. It suggested an act of the will. And the first and the greatest commandment, and the reason I went and read 1 Corinthians 13, is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. And that's what we're called to do. And that comes before your children, before your wife. Um, 
The Lord says, I've actually come to bring division in family. That there will be those that will be for me and those who will be against me. But when he's your first love, then everything else just seems to fall into place. Um, All right, let's go on. Remember, I call these the, the three R's. Well, first of all, remember that you remember from where you have fallen. And that's just going back and, and um, remembering what it was like when you first met the Lord and, and fell in love with him, the excitement that you had, couldn't wait to tell a person about him. He gives instructions. He doesn't just say, here's your problem. He says, now the second R, repent. God bless you. It's that, it's that time of the season where the pollen is high. <laughs> repent and do the first work. Well, the first work is loving the Lord. But then he said, or else. This is Jesus talking. People have, some people have a problem with the Lord saying things like, or else. They have a problem with him turning the tables over in the temple. That he made a whip and actually cleaned cleaned house. He was angry. Nothing wrong with getting angry. It says be angry, but don't sin. Amen? You can be angry. We should be angry with what's happening with abortion in America. But we shouldn't be the guy that goes around and and kills the doctor that, that does it. Be angry, but sin not. Speak out against it and do the first work or else, or else what? Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Unless you make things right, you know, the Lord's saying, I'm not sticking around. You can have the mechanism going and you can have all the wheels turning and the Lord's not even going to be there. I will remove your lampstand from its place or else. Now, I don't know if if you're grabbing the intensity of what the Lord is saying here, but um, they've just been firmly rebuked. You ever been firmly rebuked? I hope so. (laughs) But now, when you have to do that, when you have to correct somebody, what I like and what I've learned in, in just personal counseling is that you just don't leave a person in the rebuke. And what the Lord does next is something that I hope you take home with you. He commends them. He goes from the rebuke and says either or, but then he encourages them just to reaffirm his love. Now, the Bible says, those of you who are spiritual, if a person has fallen, he says, those of you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness and meekness and then consider yourself. What that guy just did, and you're rebuking him for, could happen to you. You see what I'm doing right now? I'm pointing my finger at you. Tom, you. But I got three of them coming right back at me. <laughs> so this is a, a, an object lesson. If you're really spiritual, then you correct because that's what real love is. You don't pretend it's not happening like in the church of Corinth when we had this guy sleeping with his mother-in-law or whoever it was and nobody was saying a word well Paul says I'm not there but I'm judging the situation right here oh now you're judging yeah he said even though I'm not there I'm judging you get get that guy you kick him out of the fellowship turn him over to the devil and then pray for him for what for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his soul will be saved. Because if he doesn't repent, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 or 9, 6 says, those who are living in fornication will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And now we've got a guy in church, everybody knows about it, but nobody's saying anything about it. Here, the Lord corrects what's wrong, but then he commends them. And he says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans um, actually is made up of two words, Nico, priest or conqueror, and then Laos, Nicolaitans, or people. 
uh, people conquers, ruling over the people. Jesus is our one mediator, but this was the beginning of the early priesthood, those who would rule, rule over people. He commended them. Now, if you look over to the church of Pergamos, and if you look at your timeline, well, the timeline's down, but by the time we get to Pergamos, we have in verse 15, he says, this you also have that you hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So what the Ephesians were keeping out, they weren't allowing the priesthood to be established in the early church. That he, he commends them. But by the time you go down the road a little bit to Pergamos, they fully adopted it. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's not what I taught you guys to do. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, and this is said to all the churches, now comes the promise. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You don't hear about the tree of life except in the book of Genesis. It's not mentioned again until you get to the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. It's there in the beginning, and now we have the the tree of life once again in the book of uh, Revelation. And I'm past my time. But we made it through the first church. Let's stand. Lord, as we... As we leave tonight, and um, all of us are convicted as we put our names in the category of love and then comparing it to you, Lord, help us keep the first commandment and let the rest fall into place. Uh, Thank you for the example as you speak to us while we're still in the church age. Uh, Lord, help us see this book as a blessing. Help us heed its warnings. Help us receive its wonderful promises that are made to us here. And Lord, I pray for the book of Daniel as we begin that this Sunday, that we see how these two books dovetail together. So Lord, we just give you the rest of this night and this evening, and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen.